Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. On the 1st of April, 527 AD, an extraordinary event unfolded in the ancient city of Constantinople, known to the modern world as Istanbul. The 37-year-old woman, a former actress and prostitute, dressed in the imperial regalia of Rome, was crowned as Empress of Byzantium, the eastern branch and largest remnant of the Roman Empire. But unlike many women who've been awarded such titles, Theodora wasn't just a consort or wife of the emperor. She was at her husband's behest an equal partner in the imperial household. She was also the most legitimately powerful woman to dominate Roman or Byzantine history. In this episode, I seek to discover the story behind the Empress, her early life, her struggles, and to separate the fact from the fiction. Theodora's earliest years are shrouded in mystery. Three separate accounts claim Turkey, Cyprus, and Syria as possible birthplaces. What we do know is that while still an infant, she found herself living in Constantinople, the city renamed to commemorate the first Roman emperor to end centuries of repression and embrace Christianity. By this time, And despite a brief renaissance under the emperor Julian the Apostate, the traditional pagan religions of Rome had all been but stamped out by zealous emperors and administrators who enthusiastically embraced Christianity. Despite this apparent sea change in culture, in many respects, Constantinople was still identifiably Roman. It was a violent society full of intrigue, scandals and war. Even the deadly gladiatorial contest had lingered on until almost the time of Theodore's death. Despite the absence of gladiators, the games continued unabated, and her father, a man named Acacius, was a bear trainer at the major arena in the city. But the entertainment at the time was largely provided by chariot races, which involved four teams or factions. The teams were identified by colours. There were reds, greens and whites, all of whom's colours are represented in the modern Italian flag. And then there were the blues, whose colour the modern day Italian soccer and rugby teams wear. The teams each had hordes of supporters, who weren't content merely to applaud politely on race day. They were also gangs, the precursor of modern day football hooligans. Riots and deadly violence among the partisan spectators would often overshadow the action on the racetrack. Theodora's family were blues through and through. After her father died, her mother and her two young sisters frequented the Hippodrome, no doubt decked out in their blue garbs. However, they weren't just mere spectators. 
Her mother was the 6th century's sordid version of a cheerleader. She was an actress, dancer, and striptease artist at the games. As was often the case for a millennia before and a millennia after, actresses typically also worked as prostitutes. Theodora and her sisters, with no better options available to people of their lowly status in life, followed their mother into the entertainment and sex industries. The Roman historian Procopius claims that Theodora, as an actress, raised eyebrows and pulses by performing a sultry but seemingly bestial routine based on Leda and the Swan, a Greek story in which Zeus disguises himself as a bird and rapes a woman. However, Procopius's disturbing anecdote features in one of three entirely contradictory accounts of Theodora that he wrote during different points in his life. While few people dispute her role as an actress and courtesan, it's not unreasonable to think Procopius may have exaggerated her sordid antics, just as he overstated her piety on other occasions. Theodora was described as petite and pretty, but she wasn't given Helen of Troy-type assessments of beauty that Cleopatra received. Nevertheless, she is said to have had admirers from every walk of life, and one of them, the Syrian native Hesebalus, finally offered her an escape route from the brothels of the Hippodrome. She travelled with him to Libya, where he was soon revealed to be a violent brute. She fled, intending to return to Constantinople, but along the way she spent some time in the ancient Egyptian city of Alexandria, a hotbed of Christianity, but also a place where theologians were seeking to answer the mysteries of the faith. On a superficial level, Christianity seems pretty straightforward, but dig a little deeper and it leaves a lot of questions unresolved. Moreover, while many Galilean Jews viewed Jesus as the promised Abrahamic Messiah, other people practicing esoteric Eastern mysticism also saw him as the missing link in their religious belief systems. Broadly referred to as Gnostics, there were many religious groups in Egypt who saw Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, and even Jesus' mother Mary as some version or other of their own deity or deities. In trying to prevent such groups from hijacking the newly formed Christian religion, the Roman Emperor Constantine heisted the first in a series of religious councils that essentially sought to separate the wheat from the chaff. While their intentions were seemingly good, these councils moved on from answering questions based purely on scripture to speculating about anything and everything apparently intent on producing a form of orthodox faith that left zero room for ambiguity. By the time Theodora arrived in Alexandria, such analysis of unsolvable questions had led to a new schism, Miaphysitism. For the prior century and a half, mainline Christians had argued that Jesus was a single individual with two natures, a human one and a divine one. In contrast, Miaphysites argued that Jesus was completely divine and completely human, and consequently had but one nature. If you're thinking these points of view seem substantially similar, you'd be right. And some 1500 years later, the difference in the two views is seen as pure semantics. But at the time, this was a big deal. 
People had been killed as heretics for minor disagreements on theology, and the Miaphysite movement threatened to divide the emperor. Now, we don't know how religious or irreligious Theodora's parents were, but somewhere along the line, she became a hardcore Miaphysite, and many scholars believe she was indoctrinated while in Alexandria. Whatever her religious convictions, she made her way to Antioch, in what we now call Turkey, and soon found herself in familiar company, hanging out with the Blue Faction charioteers and their followers. It's rumoured that a Blue Faction dancer, Macedonia, befriended her and introduced her to Justinian. He was a well-educated theologian and soldier from Kosovo, whose uncle Justin was the emperor. The two men were close, and as Justin's health began to decline, Justinian effectively became his regent. Despite his status as the presumed heir to the throne, he wasn't going to allow his lofty standing in life to deny him the opportunity to find true love. Not long after meeting Theodora, he resolved to make the lowly-born former courtesan his wife. But there was a problem. Justinian was the heir presumptive to the imperial throne, and the law strictly forbade emperors from being married to actresses. Fortunately, he was able to lean on his benevolent uncle, and with minimal consultation, Justin quickly scrapped the troublesome law. This enabled Justinian and Theodora to seal their union as husband and wife in AD 525. Just two years later, her husband was elevated from mere emperor-in-waiting to co-ruler, and his uncle, knowing he was living on borrowed time, decided to move up the coronation. A few months later, the ailing Justin was dead. Justinian and his co-ruler Theodora were now in complete control of the empire. The first few years of their reign were fairly uneventful, but Justinian's tax hikes to fuel various military expeditions sowed the seeds of resentment among the populace. The tipping point came, though, in AD 532, when Theodora's old compadres, the chariot-racing-loving Blue Faction, became embroiled in a vicious riot with their rivals, the Greens. While his wife had been a lifelong Blue, Justinian, to use the common vernacular, was a fair-weather fan, sometimes siding with his wife's team, and on other occasions, favouring the Greens. But when the members of the two groups were arrested for acts of violence in 532 AD, the emperor forgot his allegiances altogether and batted away pleas to pardon the ringleaders for their crimes. This rebuffal caused something unprecedented to happen. The Blues and Greens joined forces and began ransacking Rome. In the midst of the ensuing chaos, they even dared to name Hypatius, a relative of the former emperor Anastasius, as the emperor. Now it's difficult to imagine these days a football riot turning into a revolution. But these people weren't just fans of chariot racing. They had developed allegiances and grievances based on neighbourhoods, workplaces and traditions. They were like a hybrid of a sports fan group and a militant trade union. They started fires all over Rome and closed in on the palace. Justinian's closest advisers told him the gig was up. It was time to flee into exile. Contemporary accounts suggest the emperor was frantically packing his suitcase when his wife, 
decided to intervene. Theodora burst into a male-only conference involving her husband and his most trusted advisors. Her message was a simple one. You've got to die or do something. Would you rather die across the waves in disgrace and exile or stay here in your imperial purple robes and remain as emperor to the last? As she put it herself, may I never be deprived of this purple robe and may I never see the day when those who meet me do not call me empress. Perhaps convinced by her logic, or perhaps being embarrassed by the courageousness of a woman compared with his own cowardice, Justinian and his advisers quickly abandoned attempts at escape. He summoned his loyal guards and sent them out into the city. It's estimated that 30,000 blue and green rioters, as well as poor old Hypatius, were massacred. But very quickly, order was restored. Coming up, religious questions threaten to tear the imperial household apart. Fascinating People, Fascinating Places presents 5 Amazing Facts Brought to you by Daniel Mainwaring, author of When Babel Floods and The Treacherous Exhibit. Theodora died on the 28th of June, the same day Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated as a prelude to World War I. The most famous representation of Theodora can be found in the church of San Vitale in Ravenna, Italy, where she appears on a mosaic alongside her husband. She founded a convent for fallen women named Metanoia, which means repentance, where these individuals hoped to find absolution for their sins. In one of Procopius's dubious accounts of her, he has her saying she regrets that God gave her only three orifices for pleasure. Unusually for an emperor, her husband never remarried after her death, despite being childless and without an heir. After the so-called Nicker riots, Justinian and Theodora decided to reshape the city. Much of it had been damaged or destroyed during the rioting, including the Hagia Sophia Basilica, built a century earlier during the reign of Theodosius II, on the site of an earlier church that had also been destroyed. The empire Justinian ruled over had been established by the Romans, but politically speaking, Constantinople had long surpassed the city of Seven Hills, as the capital of the known world. In religious terms, though, Rome, as the seat of the Pope, was still at the heart of Christendom. But during reconstruction of Constantinople, Justinian and Theodora saw an opportunity to usurp the power and standing of Rome. The new Hagia Sophia, or Church of Holy Wisdom, with its ornate dome over a square interior, was the largest basilica in the world. 
Never one to underestimate his achievements. Upon seeing it, Justinian boasted, Now I have surpassed Solomon. The lavish interior and marble exterior didn't come cheap, and it required Solomon-like riches to fund the project. The initial budget was set at 4,000 gold coins, but there are rumours that additional funds were extorted and gathered by unscrupulous means to ensure the completion of the project. It was almost a thousand years before a larger church was built in Europe. Whilst putting Rome into the shade with the Grand Basilica, Theodora further weakened the standing of the Holy See by helping to oust the Pope. Silverius was a low-born deacon who had ascended to the papacy seemingly with the support of the Ostrogoths. Not only did Theodora and her husband object to having a pope in the pocket of the one-time barbarians, she wanted to ensure the church was in the hands of someone who shared her ideas on Christology. She found such a man in the form of the scheming deacon Vigilius. Like her, he rejected the Nicene concept of the Trinity and believed Jesus had just one nature, the divine. At Theodora's behest, Pope Silverius was driven into exile, and Vigilius ascended to the papal crown. Once in power, Vigilius restored Anthimus, the deposed Miaphysite patriarch, and an old ally of Theodora's, as the patriarch of Constantinople. The man tasked with overseeing this liturgical upheaval was Belisarius, the trusted general who had quelled the Nicoraeans. His wife was Antonina, a former actress with a reputation for lewd behaviour. She was also Theodora's best friend, and the empress ensured the marriage stayed intact despite Belisarius' attempts to free himself from a wife who openly cavorted with her adopted son. Belisarius had his uses as a general, but his relationship with Theodora was utilitarian in nature, and she wasn't going to reward loyalty with steps that could harm her friendship with his wife. Back in Byzantium, the emperor was busily reforming the Roman legal system through the Corpus Juris Civilis, commonly known as the Code of Justinian. But as with most things, it was an endeavour his wife was actively involved in. She is credited with enacting laws that made it easier for women to divorce their husbands, prevented women from being forced into prostitution, and legislation that created severe penalties for rape precisely the kind of rules that would have prevented the next generation of young women from enduring the kind of childhood Theodora had lived. Critics of Theodora argue that she forgot her humble roots and allowed her standing as empress to go to her head. It's said that she had dignitaries lie prostrate in her presence and kiss her feet. They dare not speak until she gave her consent, and oftentimes she made people wait hours days or even weeks before deigning to share her presence with them. They dare not speak until she gave her consent. These behaviours though may have another cause that has nothing to do with her forgetting her roots and in fact indicates the opposite. As a young woman from a humble upbringing, how better to demonstrate that the tables had turned than to humiliate and degrade the kind of wealthy and powerful men who had used and abused her during her formative years. Coming up, Theodora leaves her mark on the judicial system.
please remember to check out my other episodes. Here's a preview. In this episode, I explore the Christian community of Teze. Seemingly nothing seems to happen, but then something happens. Reconciliation among all Christians. Opening doors of hospitality and invitation. Prayer as the center of life. They had been secretly formed as Christians because it wasn't allowed. So they from the underground church. Then when suddenly he, he disappeared, then we discovered that in fact he prepared the whole community to live also without him. One of the oddities of Justinian and Theodora's seemingly inextricable union was the fact that they found themselves on the opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to religion. He was unequivocally orthodox in his beliefs. Like Christian emperors before him, he had little time for heretics such as the Monophysites. But the nonconformist belief system had strong roots in Egypt and other parts of the East. He tried to force a compromise between the Nicene faithful Western Church and the East, but to no avail. Eventually, he decided to oust the unorthodox leaders, and in 537 AD, Theodora's ally, Anthemus, not long restored to office, found himself kicked to the curb once again. Having been excommunicated, ordinarily you might have expected him to flee into exile in some distant land. Instead, he showed up at Theodora's private residence and remained there safely under her protection, like an ancient version of Julian Assange hanging out at the Ecuadorian embassy. He ended up staying there for 12 years. Shortly after, pro-Nicene riots broke out in Antioch, which led to eight more Miaphysite church leaders taking refuge in Theodora's royal complex. But her sheltering of the so-called heretics wasn't something mysterious carried out in the dead of night. She was quite bold in her activities, even founding a Miaphysite monastery on the outskirts of Constantinople. Another situation erupted when the Patriarch of Alexandria died. Theodora rushed to have another Miaphysite, Theodosius, installed as his replacements. Imperial troops provided by the Empress protected Theodosius, while citizens loyal to Justinian sought to oust him. In the end, her husband won the Battle of Wills, and Theodosius was exiled, before joining the ever-expanding group of Miaphysite houseguests at Theodora's home. The last great religious battle between husband and wife occurred in 540 AD, when they sent rival groups of missionaries to southern Egypt, each seeking to consolidate support for their brand of Christianity. Theodora craftily arranged with local contacts to have the emperor's delegation delayed. By the time his people arrived, the locals had already committed to the Miaphysite beliefs. Their clashes over religion were reminiscent of Henry VIII's with Anne Boleyn, after she drifted towards Lutheranism, the difference being that Anne had little clout, as her grisly fate demonstrates. 
Two years later, the empire was stricken with plague. The unrelenting wave of death and pestilence hit people of every station, even the emperor, who was taken gravely ill. Theodora became the de facto ruler during his convalescence, during which time she created an intrigue against Belisarius, the long-serving general who had helped rescue her and Justinian from the rioting mobs of a decade earlier. The battle against Belisarius wasn't necessarily personal. It had more to do with the fact he might be proposed as a successor should her husband succumb to the plague. Justinian had effectively made her his co-ruler, but her role would end with his, as there was the little likelihood of the empire tolerating a female as the sole ruler of the land. Luckily for Belisarius, Justinian recovered, and he was able to resume his duties as a general. In 548 AD, Theodora died. Her cause of death was likely cancer. Her marriage to Justinian had been childless, though beforehand she was said to have had one illegitimate daughter, whose fate is unknown. The grieving emperor went into a period of deep mourning before slipping into insanity later in his reign. As a widower, he became more cruel and vindictive. Some speculate he had suffered neurological damage from his bout of the plague. Others speculate that his wife kept his nastier tendencies at bay. Nonetheless, the Miaphysites sheltered by his deceased wife were extended the protection of the emperor after her demise. Well, stone the flaming crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.